What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach, and joining me, as always, is Ben Fisher. Ben, how goes? It's going, man. We've got some new cards on the horizon in Commander Legends, and we've got a new set going on right now in Kaladesh. Standard is playable again. Uh, mono green food is just chomping everybody up. It's a, it's a good time to be playing Magic. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there are a lot of sweet decks in Standard right now, and I'm I'm kind of excited about one in particular, uh, which I think maybe I'll mention during my Teferi, but I can't actually play it yet because I don't have enough wild cards. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we'll get to that soon enough. Yeah, well, first up, of course, we have to plug our sponsor <laughs> every single <laughs> week. Uh, we are sponsored by MTG Arena Zone which is your top destination for all Magic the Gathering arena articles, uh, community decks, news, and more. They they have plenty of content for constructed and limited players, both, and um, they, they tend to have articles surrounding top archetypes, theory articles for getting better at the game itself, and uh, everything in between, basically. So check them out for written content. They, they do a great job over there, and we're super happy to have them as a sponsor. Of course, the podcast is also brought to you by you via the Patreon, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft half pod. We have five different tiers there, I believe, and um, there's kind of something there for everybody. So if you want to, you know, you maybe want to contribute a few bucks, our lowest tier is, I think, $2, and it goes upwards from there. So you can contribute whatever you want, any amount. Um, we super, super, super thank you for all of the support you guys are giving. Uh, it really keeps us doing this. It, it makes it a lot easier to, to do this every week, even. Um, on weeks that we may not feel so inspired or, or just hard, find it hard to get in front of the mic and, and talk. Are you but, telling me that, that you're not inspired to be here? <laughs> always, of course. Um, <laughs> no, we, we do love this and we really appreciate all of your support, everybody. Thank you. Absolutely. Of course, we also have the Discord that's completely free. You can check that out. Uh, the episode link or the link to that is in the episode description. Um, and we've been continuing to get new, newer folks in there as well, and it's, it's been a lot of fun with Kaladesh uh, coming out. We've been theory crafting different decks and dropping in, um, you know, different picks and checking out trophies and all that. Um, Sirkovitz, uh, one of our users, Sirkovitz, did a, a dump recently of a bunch of pretty solid decks that didn't trophy, and it's a that was a cool little look down um, what works and what sometimes doesn't but it, it's it's an important reminder to check out things not not just the trophy decks but also the things that don't trophy all right ben we have a crack a draft type thing here that um it's a pretty spicy one you you had this come up earlier this week so to let let let, let the listeners know what what is this current situation with this pack it's not a pack one pick one where are we in the draft so this is a pack three pick one so we've gone through two whole packs already this uh those that are in the discord have already seen uh, a bit of this deck in action, but this deck was nuts. So I started off with a free jam region, which is a, a solid card. I started picking up some red cards. I got past a Quicksmith Rebel. Uh, I've got Chandra's Revolution. I've got a Reckless Fireweaver, Frontline Rebel. Uh, and then in pack two, I started picking up white. Uh, I got a Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, an Aether Storm Rock, Skywhaler's Shot, uh, Eddie Trail Hawk. And then some random artifacts here and there. Uh, I picked up a Narnum Cobra, Fire Forge's Puzzle Knot, Fabrication Module, uh, Mobile Garrison. Just a bunch of random little things here. But essentially, this was a big red-white deck. This was big Boros, uh, for those that know that uh, that old deck. This is not your average red-white deck. It's not looking to beat down with a million two-drops. This is a very different plan. Now, uh I knew that going into pack three, I was going to want to take some things that allowed me to get to my late game power. For example, taking over the game with a Quicksmith Rebel and an artifact, which 
Uh, when it enters the battlefield, it gives an artifact the ability to tap uh, and deal two damage to any target. That can be a really powerful uh, machine gun effect in the late game, just kind of pinging down your opponent's stuff and then eventually turning it towards their face. So while red-white in this format does usually want to be as aggressive as it can get with vehicles, this deck kind of had a different plan in mind, uh, like I said, getting the late game. So now in pack three, what do I open but a combustible gear hulk, uh, which is the red mythic gear hulk we've got there. When it ETBs, uh, your opponent can either let you draw three cards or flip the top three cards in the graveyard and they take damage equal to the combined converted mana cost of those cards. So it's something like, uh, do you let your opponent or do you let me draw three cards or do you take, I don't know, four, six, maybe in a wild situation, 10 damage. Uh, and then, you know, it's also a six, six first strike. Also in this pack, we've got some other stuff, uh, Fatal Push, uh, oh, nothing else is interesting, <laughs> uh, except, uh, except of course, for the, the, the only other thing in this pack that made me pause, uh, and that's a veteran motorist. Now that's the red and a white 3-1 dwarf pilot. It's the uh, signpost uncommon, or one of them for, for red-white. When it enters the battlefield, you scry two, and whenever it crews a vehicle, the vehicle gets plus one, plus one, correct? It's a little blurry. Yes, language, yes. I'm pretty sure that's how that works, yeah. Um, now, I wanted to talk about this pick between these two cards. And these are the only two cards in the pack that we're considering. Now, someone that has just been, you know, picked up Kaladesh and is saying, oh, red-white, it's doing aggressive vehicle stuff. This Gear Hulk looks expensive and the power is certainly there. It's a huge body and it has a cool ETB effect. But aren't I red-white vehicles? Don't I want to be beating down? Uh, so because this isn't initially just a slam the Gear Hulk, I wanted to talk about this. What's going through your head in, in this pickup here? Well, it's, it's worth mentioning this is pack three again. I know we already said that, but it's worth mentioning it again because pack three is really one of the pack where you want to pick up the things that fill holes in your deck. Um, by pack three, you should know what your lane was. Uh, you should have most of your game plan together and just kind of have a few small holes that you want to patch up with random pickups you might get in, in pack three or bolster a color that you got cut in pack one, but was open in pack two and, and that kind of thing. So I would be looking at your deck list here which which you have and like you said you're on the more controlling side of things a free jam region and cataclysmic gear hulk are expensive creatures and they have big effects that can win the game so you kind of are hoping to stall long enough to get to them mm -hmm. but like you said you're in red white and you do have one vehicle and you have a few good aggressive creatures but really not a whole lot in that department so yeah you're, you're kind of fighting this tendency to lean towards the archetype that is um like status quo you know you're you're fighting yeah. against the the pull into red white aggro and trying to stick to this red white control deck which sounds really bizarre and kind of feels weird to 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 look at as a deck list and be drafting but when you look at the cards you see how they synergize together i think it's really interesting to see and we saw this happen a lot with zendikar rising too right there were a bunch of decks that popped up out of nowhere that people didn't really have on their radar because they didn't fit the traditional schema of what makes uh, a wizard's deck, for instance. Like Blue Green Wizards was a was a strong deck in Zendikar Rising, but it didn't. It took a while to show up because people were expecting Blue Red to be the wizard's deck and didn't really think about it being outside of that realm. And here you're seeing the exact same thing. This is a, a red white control deck, which almost never happens. Um, so I would be slamming the Gear Hulk here, not just because it's the mythic, but because it fits your game plan quite a bit. And you only have the one the one uh, uh, vehicle, so you know you're not really in the red white vehicles deck. 
Motorist is maybe a signal, but by pack three, you would know how likely it is to wheel as a double colored card, and, and the Gear Hulk is definitely not. It's one of the few bombs in the set. So I would, yeah, I would be on the Gear Hulk f- full stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I think the Gear Hulk is a stronger card in itself, uh, but there are some red white vehicles decks that wouldn't want it. Uh, mm-hmm. Some that are low enough to the ground that they have critical mass of two drops and three drops. And, you know, maybe they're trying to play like, I don't know, 15, 16 lands. Uh, there are definitely decks like that in this format where uh, a random six drop, even if it does have the potential to end the game on the spot or at least threaten to it. Uh, I've seen games of Kaladesh Remastered Limited end on turn five. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I ended a few games on turn five myself the other day. <laughs> like sometimes this Gear Hulk is not what you want to do uh, to be doing. But in this specific deck, uh, we've been talking a lot recently about drafting decks that have plans, right? Mm-hmm. I think this Gear Hulk fits into the plan of this deck very well. Of survive until the late game, use early removal and some of these uh, creatures that are able to block and potentially trade, and then take over the game in the late game with your bombs. And that's what I did. I ended up taking the Gear Hulk here. Uh, I immediately was past a Fumigate, <laughs> which was just awesome. Uh, so, I, I mean, if you've ever gotten a chance to play a board wipe in Limited, it entirely changes the way you play the game. And not only that, but when you have two of them in uh, Cataclysmic Gear Hulk as well, it really makes a very fun play experience. I pretty much had no hands that I wanted to, to mulligan ever. In fact, I believe I kept one hand that was uh, five lands, Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, and Fumigate. Wow. I just felt as if nothing. I was like, "What's gonna, what's gonna hurt me?" Uh, right, and um, uh, that was a, a pretty straightforward three uh, zero in traditional draft. Yeah, um, it, this deck had a plan. It wasn't the traditional one, but it was a lot of fun. And sometimes those untraditional plans can really throw your opponent off because they see you play a plains, they see you play a mountain, and they're like, "Well, I gotta beat down before he beats down," or somehow fit, stall their game plan. Like they're gonna try to beat me down. And then you don't, you like hardly have any two drops in this deck. There are, you know, a couple of like a couple of decent three drops that are actually going to affect the board. And then your opponent's like, wait a second, what's going on? Did they, did they brick? Are they not drawing well? And then you're like cataclysmic gear Hulk, wipe your board, free jam region. We're doing it. (laughs) Yeah. I I actually end up picking up one of the flicker angels as well. Uh, The six drop for flyer that flickers a creature. And uh, I did get to flicker cataclysmic gear Hulk and it was as awesome as it sounds. Hey, I mean, I was actually going to mention too when you when you were talking about the Quicksmith Rebel, that's a great source for those flicker effects because if you have an artifact, you're which you do have a number of in this deck already, that Quicksmith Rebel bouncing is going to be doing uh, quite a bit of work as well. What do you mean by Quicksmith Rebel bouncing? That's the ping one, or you mean like bouncing it to switch to a different artifact? Uh, oh, does that? I, I'm sorry, I misread uh, the card, but um, yeah, basically, I was saying. I was thinking that the the ping effect happened once. I didn't realize that it actually gave the the artifact the ability to tap to do that. But oh uh, yeah, 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 never yeah. mind. Just totally ignore cut, that. Cut, cut that in post. Don't <laughs> don't, cut don't cut it. Leave it in. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually ended up cutting the frontline rebel from this deck. That's the three mana three three that attacks each turn. It doesn't fit the game plan. This nope. deck doesn't really want that. It just wants to stay alive uh, for a while and then get paid off with you know jam in the free jam region and that kind of thing that was that's one of the funniest parts of this deck that like i also have like an aether storm rock in there which is just a solid a in in any kind of aggressive white deck i just use it as a format of three three flyer (laughs) (laughs) it just kind of chilled Uh, i also had the combo fabrication module plus i'm gonna shut up because this deck was just so cool let's get to the rest of the show (laughs) Alrighty. so that brings us to our teferi tybalt's ben what's been going on this week well 
it's the end of the marking period in, in teacher land. So that means lots of grading, lots of catching up and not a ton of time for, for games and magic. It's been, you know, the stress of the end of the marketing period, in addition to the stress of teaching during a pandemic and all that, like I heard from, uh, I think someone in the school district that there's been an average of one student going in, uh, for like some kind of mental health, uh, problem every day. Or, wow. I don't want to say problem because not that's not that a mental health uh, crisis is like something that's abnormal. That that's something that everyone goes through. But the 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 rate at which it's been happening among students is up, and it sounds pretty bad. Uh, and now my school is going to be online until well into January because a few more custodial staff and teachers tested positive. So Oof. I'm at home for a while, which means I guess uh, I get to you know hang out near my my big bookshelf of magic stuff, organize it a bit, you know, maybe build some new decks, but. It's an interesting time, you know, at least it's not boring. Yeah, welcome to the club, buddy. I've been working from home since March. Man, <laughs> I will say it's nice that I, I get to wear sweatpants every single day. My webcam is only from like my, my like uh, waist up. So that, that's pretty nice. Um, now my Teferi for the week. Uh, something that I haven't experienced before. I ran into a listener in one of my games. That's like, dope. I was playing traditional. Yeah, I, I was like, this is this is so awesome. Like. This is why we, we do this thing, right? Uh, so good games, Felix. Um, now we, we, it started off. It was best of uh, best of three traditional. Uh, they had a pretty sick red white uh, vehicles deck with multiple uncommons. Um, was it the Re Renegade Wheelsmith? That's the mm -hmm. one, right? Uh, they had at least two of those. Um, they won game one pretty easily. I won game two by ramping into a Nissa. That <laughs> that's that's a way to win games. Uh, game three was really close. Um, I resolved a rich scale Tusker. I had an armor craft judge in hand and I was about to draw so many cards, but, uh, then they dropped the second renegade Willsmith and just <laughs> killed me out of nowhere. It, it, it was pretty sick. Uh, so again, good games. That's awesome. I, I am so excited that people like we can run into people now and like recognize who they are by their, their username and stuff. That's really yeah, awesome. It was so great. I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. So other people hop in our discord, become a familiar face and you too will get to defeat me in Magic the Gathering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said I said before we started recording, like, come on, Ben, you're representing us so poorly. Like, or maybe you're representing <laughs> us perfectly. I, I have to think about that a little more. <laughs> yeah, nothing more representative than a, you know, just losing on the spot, R Perfect. resolving a Ridge Kill Tusker, and then dying. <laughs> yeah, especially after an, like that was the the week after you t you hyped up Ridge Kill Tusker so much. All right, to be fair, Ridgecoat Tusker is still an amazing magic card. Um, I don't disagree. <laughs> it's for, for all the times that I've died after casting it, I've won plenty more games winning with it. So, yeah. How about you? What's up? What's new? Uh, well, my tibble is that work continues to be extremely busy. I'm hitting, um, so <laughs> brief, like, aside about what I do. Um, I've mentioned a few times, but I'm a site reliability engineer, which means I, I run infrastructure for, for my company. And, um, basically so now you gotta explain what that means <laughs> yeah it's like it's like all the like servers and stuff behind the applications that that come that that software companies make um so anyway long story short is there there's a team that in within nielsen that doesn't have a dedicated infrastructure team so they kind of like pseudo hire my team to to work for, on their stuff uh mm -hmm. but i'm the only person on my team who actually touches their their infrastructure uh, so I'm, I'm doing the work of probably three people, um, and they're, they're coming right. up close. To, yeah. I mean, sometimes it is, um, <laughs> but they're coming up on like 
relatively hard deadlines and uh, need some of this some of this infrastructure to be done faster. But meanwhile, I have other stuff that I have to do for my team. So it's like uh, there's a lot going on, but it's good to be busy. And, uh, you know, I, I've been learning a lot. So it works. It works out in my favor, I think. Um, Sweet. And my Teferi this week is that Thanksgiving's around the corner. I'm super excited for that. It's going to be nice to... I don't know what we're doing, really. It's going to be super scaled down, of course, because, you know, like, uh, pandemic and stuff. But um, I think we'll see uh, Hannah's parents, and that's probably about it. I'm not really sure who else will be there, uh, if anybody. But um, it'll be a nice little break. I get two days off and, uh, like, a long weekend and stuff. And Black Friday's around, so hopefully I can snag some weird deals that i don't need you know just buy random stuff that i don't need that'll be great um oh yeah all right let's do some listener questions this week first one we got here is from jinsoak boy 13 who asks in constructed you get good with the deck by playing the same deck a ton yeah i agree with that so obviously you can't do that in limited but do you think you become better at a format by quote-unquote soft forcing colors or archetypes you have prior experience with and staying away from ones that you have poor experience with or do you get better by just sticking to a lane and gaining a little experience with every archetype? Interesting question. So uh, is it better to kind of force the thing you're good at or, uh, you know, get incrementally better little by little uh, with, with each new one that you draft? Yeah, I think I think it's a, a trap to force archetypes almost in any way. Sometimes you can get away with forcing and I do it myself. So I, I'm kind of hypocritical there. I know I fall into that trap occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I think in general, the best way to get better at a format is to understand how all the decks in that format play because you you have the opportunity in most cases if you draft like if you draft enough you know a couple times a week is is generally enough throughout the course of the whole format um if you draft enough you get an idea of what every deck wants to do and then when you're not playing those decks but you're playing against them you have an idea of what they're trying to do so you know their game plan right from the start which is which is great and i think that's a lot of why you get good at playing a deck uh, the like the same deck a lot in constructed is because you understand the matchups that that deck has and the only way to do that in limited is to play all of them and play matches against all of them so um, that's probably a good start I would I would try to avoid force uh, soft forcing um, what do you think Ben yeah it's interesting so I think there are actually some situations where it can be correct to soft force uh, for example the first like two weeks of Ikoria limited uh, where Cycling was busted. Uh, people found out pretty quickly, but even then, a lot of people online underrated cycling. So, for example, you would take the colorless one mana or two mana cyclers over like bombs, right? Over the, the mythics, the mythic creatures, the things doing these big flashy things. It'd be better to just, you know, uh, take that pack one, pick one Zenith Flare, and then take every single cycler that you could get. Or even just a mediocre red white cycling deck was often better than the other, than the best version of many of the other decks in the format. Mm-hmm. So in cases like that, you can get very good by doing that. But draft is a self-correcting metagame. So once that happens for long enough, people start to realize it. Uh, if it's the bots, the bots get tuned. And if it's people, the people wise up to it. And then uh, they start figuring out, well, this is underdrafted right now. I'm going to start picking up on this. And then they do start winning games. So uh, I think there's also other ways that you can go about doing this. For example, watching other content creators, right? There's so much magic content out there. No matter who it is you enjoy watching. Uh, CFB uh, is is my personal place to go if I want to watch some high quality uh, videos like that. Of course, there's plenty of other uh, great places to find video magic content, right? Um, and through that experience, you do wind up getting a little bit of uh, of knowledge of every single archetype. Also, one thing that I like to do is when I'm losing a game, which you know happens a good percentage of the time, 
I like to think, well, how did my opponent win this? What was their deck's plan? And by doing that, then you know what your plan should be when you wind up in that color pair or archetype or whatever it might be. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a huge boon to have the connectivity that we have these days too, because you know things like the Discord or Magic Twitter or other Discords, Limited Level Ups has one as well. Um, you see a lot more decks than you would if, like, I don't have the time to draft hundreds of times a week or whatever, but like a lot of streamers do, and a lot of players collectively kind of crowdsource the information for this stuff, right? You get deck lists, you see what's the picks, you see all of that kind of stuff and other magic pros talking about it on Twitter and that kind of stuff. And that those are data points that we can collect and use for our own drafting uh, because ultimately, you know, it's the same format. So you can take everything that other players are, are learning and use those to your advantage. Cool. So next up, we've got from Koga305 who asks, what is your process for creating a set review or format overview? Yeah, so this is a poignant question given that we just did our Kaladesh Remastered set review and we'll be doing something approaching a set review or a format overview for Kaladesh, uh, sorry, Commander Legends. Um, essentially, what we like to do is take a look at all the cards in the format to some degree. I mean, we don't we don't generally do a full set, set review like rating for each card uh, together, Ben and I, but... Uh, we go through the set, we evaluate the cards, um, we look at the signpost on commons most most often and check out what is the color pair for this archetype or for these colors trying to do. Because usually, usually the signpost on common is just that, it's a signpost. It tells you what the what the archetype is trying to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's a great starting point. So we, we look at those and then we try to find, generally we try to find the, the top cards in those archetypes and what cards really support certain decks and uh, break those down for you. And then, of course, um, one of the big things that people like to find out is like the top top three commons in each color or top common in it in, in each color. Um, so we also put some stock into figuring out which cards, uh, which commons are, quote unquote, the best at the start of a format. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think one thing that I kind of approach a new format with thinking of is what are they telling you to do? Right. Mm-hmm. And the signposts on commons are a good way of doing that. Seeing some of the rares are a good way to do that. Uh, even sometimes build arounds are a good way to do that. And then the other thing you want to think of is uh, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. So, for example, is there a very low to the ground, hyper aggressive one drop deck? Is there a go big five color deck? Is there a uh, seven drop rare that's so unique that it would warp the format if you cast it? Uh, and, and that's something that you can do. So we like to address all of these when we can. Uh, if there's, say, hidden archetypes that you might call those later ones, in addition to the usual two-color pairs. Now, we don't always catch these at the uh, the format breakdown, right? For example, uh, in Zendikar, there's so many other little niche things that we, we never thought to talk about. For example, like blue-green wizards or uh, the, the random like black-green kicker decks that can pop up every once in a while. These are real ways that you can win. These are things that you can do that weren't super evident from the from the start. Yeah, and I mean, just looking back as far as the Kaladesh Remastered uh, format breakdown, we got all of almost all of the uh, top commons wrong. Like most of the top commons in Kaladesh are not removal, and uh, we we kind of missed the boat on that. But it's a good, generally a good starting point. But um, you know, sometimes we do miss, and sometimes I think everybody misses. I think the MDFCs were a big situation where where players missed a lot of things, or you know, over tuned or. Um, thought too highly of them or thought too lowly of them. And like we said earlier for, for gin soaked boys um, uh, question, it's self-correcting. So you evaluate, you continue to evaluate and you, you adjust those evaluations. 
But um, yeah, I think that's that's a decent way to go about it. And we did want to ask because we started to s- sort of uh, shift our format breakdown kind of templating. Um, what do you guys what do you guys like to see in in a format review or a format breakdown? Um, are we missing anything? Are we uh, adding too much? Uh, give us give us some feedback in the uh, in the Discord. We have a, a section there for general feedback and content suggestions as well. If you want us to do episodes on certain things, so this is probably a good place to plug all that. But this is episode twenty two. We didn't mention it at the beginning because I'm bad at intros, but <laughs> this is episode twenty two of Giraffe Chaff, and today we're talking all about the fundamentals of card evaluation. We're bringing it back to the basics yet again. Uh, last time on this sort of like sub-series, we talked about how to draft and what, what a draft is actually like um, and some things to look out for while you're drafting. This time we're talking about card evaluation. So Ben, why don't you walk us through a little overview of what that means and what is card evaluation as a whole? Sure. So one of the core aspects of limited magic and I guess really all magic for that matter is card evaluation, being able to see what your cards do and tell if it's good enough for the rate that you're getting it at. Uh, understanding what makes a card, you know, good, bad, ugly, anything in between, that's pivotal to putting an actual deck together. And uh, that way you can step away from the draft table with a, a deck instead of just a pile of cards that happen to be the same colors. So uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited for this step in our uh, back to basics, which I think we can make a recurring series. Uh, yeah, I would like to. Yeah, it seems to be a, a good support and people are responding well to this. Uh, so hopefully you walk away from today's episode with a bit of uh, understanding of how to look at a card and say, yeah, this is good or yeah, this is trash. So card evaluation is the process by which players determine the power level of a particular card or maybe a set of cards. So uh, often this is to, you know, hold on, cut that. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Because uh, I'm, I'm reading your writing here, so I have to like make sure I like hit the enunciations right. Okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. All right. Uh, Starting. So often, as this kind of become our mantra, this process is contextual, right? Uh, Everything is contextual to the set that the particular card belongs in. So that could include the overall strength of a given color or the strength of cards in other colors and the themes of the set. These all play a factor in determining the strength of an individual card in its context. Uh, And then the importance of the set's context is pretty evident in shifting pick orders. Uh, and card ratings after players have you know more time and experience playing the set. So initial card evaluations have to be made without most of that context, I guess besides the occasional simulation. Now, a lot of prominent players have developed or, or maybe adopted versions of card evaluation theories to help determine what makes a card uh, quote-unquote good. And today we're going to dive into a bunch of these theories and explore how using these theories can uh, affect your drafting and ultimately make you a better drafter. Yeah, so a uh, quick shout out to Sierkovitz. We mentioned them a bit before in the episode, uh, but they just wrote up an awesome contemporary write-up for card evaluation, kind of pretty similar to what we're going to be talking about, but used a lot of data provided from 17 lands um, in their, their breakdown and kind of bolstering how well do these theories actually play out when you're using them to, to pick cards. So if you want some seriously like relevant and and significant data on what this this stuff actually brings out check out uh sirkovitz's article on channel fireball uh i'll have the link to that in the episode description as well okay so that brings us to our card evaluation theories we're going to break down all of the major card evaluation theories kind of give you our take on them and what we think about them how they've applied in our drafting careers and how you might be able to apply them to yours so first up quick honorable mention i know those usually come at the end but uh, this is kind of where everybody starts. This is the vanilla test. 
And we've mentioned it before, and I think we mentioned it in our first Back to Basics episode, but Vanilla Test is essentially figuring out how much power and toughness are you getting for the mana cost of a card. To pass the Vanilla Test, a card needs to be sort of on par with one mana per point of power and toughness. So a one mana 1-1, one, one, two mana 2-2, two, two, three mana 3-3, three, three, things of that nature. And that falls off a little bit when you hit higher, higher amounts of mana. A six mana 6-6 six, six kind of doesn't pass the Vanilla Test, sort of. Um... But that that's a little bit more, um, uh, what's the word, like subjective, I suppose, uh, depending on the context of the, the set. But that's kind of the initial thing. You want to look at the card just based on power, toughness, and mana cost. But then you get into kind of the next sort of level up of theories that you can think about, which is called Quadrant Theory. Now, Quadrant Theory was created by Brian Wong, who was a former co-host of Limited Resources. I believe the second co-host of Limited Resources. Right after yeah, uh, Ryan Spain. Uh, but Before essentially, yeah, yeah. Essentially, Quadrant Theory evaluates cards based on the various potential states of a game where the card could show up. Um, and Brian broke this down into four different stages of the game. There's the development stage, which is essentially the first few turns, turns one through three-ish. Um, and that starts, you start on parity. Both players have zero resources and you're playing a land, playing maybe a one drop, playing a two drop, those kinds of things. And it tends to be this sort of resource war between the opponent um, and yourself where you want to stay at parity or hopefully get ahead on board as you progress into the mid game, which is sort of around the turn four mark. So actually, sometimes a lot of people wonder why Black Lotus is such a good card, right? Uh, Explaining to a friend who's not into Magic the Gathering, they'll just look at it and say, well, it just does what lands do, right? But part of the reason that Black Lotus is such a, a fantastic card is that it kind of rockets you ahead in the development stage. It's so good on turn one because it kind of takes you uh, several turns ahead. That's why it's so good. That and obviously a million other applications with sacrificing and bringing it back and different storm things. And who, You know what I mean? Yeah, no, but you're right. It, it kind of, it skips the development phase. It gets you into that. Basically, if you play a land in a Black Lotus on turn one, you're essentially on turn four, which, mm-hmm. which is huge. When your opponent's on turn zero or turn one, that's a really big deal. So next up, after you get out of the development phase, once you hit around that turn four mark, the, the board state kind of breaks down into three potential um, states, right? You could be at parity, which is what happens in, at the beginning of the game, and you hope to still be in once you hit the mid game. You could be ahead or you could be behind. And so parity is your essential uh, kind of bread and butter board stall. That's where Nobody's really attacking. Nobody's really blocking. Things are just kind of sitting there and you're waiting for somebody to draw some way to, to generate advantage or get a leg up. Nobody has that at this point, um, but, you know, any top deck could do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really good there. Planeswalkers. A way to yes. get uh, even more additional value per turn if you're top decking and people are drawing the occasional land or the occasional creature. A Planeswalker just breaks that in half. Absolutely. So being ahead is when you have some kind of advantage there's no board stall perhaps you're attacking and your opponent doesn't have any creatures um it might be your board presence basically you have some kind of advantage it might be your board presence might be cards in hand might be other resources like your 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 mana available or your life total or anything of that nature and it could be some combination of all these things generally i like to look at being ahead as some kind of zero sum where if you're ahead your opponent has to be behind there's no there's no way you can both be ahead otherwise you're at parity And then behind, of course, is the least desirable game state for you as a player, but obviously it happens to everybody. There's not really any way to avoid getting behind in every single game you play, but 
generally, you know, if your opponent is ahead, you're behind and sometimes you just have to play catch up and that's how that's how magic works on on occasion. But basically quadrant theory looks at each of these board states or or board uh, game states, I should say, and looks at every card in a set in the context of these game states and then determines how they might work in each of those given scenarios. So an example of a really powerful card would be Blood Chief's Thirst, right? It's one mana, kills a creature, and then later on you can spend more mana to kill better creatures or planeswalkers. And this is a card, when you look at it in the development stage, it's a one-drop, so it's really cheap, helps you on turn two, you could play a one-drop and keep up your Blood Chief's Thirst. On turn three, you could play a two-drop, keep up Blood Chief's Thirst, and pretty much deal with any of the cards that they're going to be playing in that development stage. But then once you hit mid-game, if you top-deck it while you're behind... Well, it gets it it breaks a board stall. You get or or it helps you generate a board stall if you're behind because you can remove their best blocker or their best attacker. And if you're already ahead, well, it it helps them. It stops them from getting ahead or putting you behind or or generating parity or anything like that. So it's great in every one of these quadrants, which means it's a really powerful card that puts it up in like you know depending on your your rating scale like a B or higher. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We often look for two drops in the set that have uh, applications on both turn two and then later in the game. So, for example, a two mana two two that has no other text on it, that's not very good when you top deck it in uh, when you're either ahead or behind. It's just kind of a thing, right? But when it has some way to, say, put counters on itself or has an enters the battlefield effect that can be relevant in some other way with the other cards in the set, well, then you've got an example of a better card. Yeah, and an example of a bad card in some of these scenarios would be something like Chilling Trap. It's good when you're on parity or you're ahead because, well, it if your opponent's attacking into your board stall, you can trade favorably for yourself. You still one for one, but you keep your creature around, which is which is relevant. And it can be good in development because it might help you generate some tempo. But often it's really bad when you're behind. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you have a wizard out. But if you have no creatures out, Chilling Trap is pretty awful. So... Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's an example where it falls short in some of the, the categories, but not in all of them. So it's not like an F, certainly a playable card, but there are some situations where it's not the best thing you want. Yeah. Uh, another consideration is bombs, right? Uh, we define a bomb to be good at pretty much any point in the game, maybe except for developing because you just don't have the mana to cast it yet. But uh, something that often comes up, well, you know, it, it's kind of fallen out of favor recently, but Baneslayer Angel. Uh, this is fantastic when you're ahead. It's fantastic when you're behind. Although now a lot of removal spells do tend to kill it. But uh, it's pretty much impossible for a board state of creatures to attack into. right? Because uh, it blocks something, gains you a bunch of life, uh, first strikes it down. So this is great when you're behind because it helps stabilize your board. And it's great when you're ahead because now you're, I mean, you've got a Bane Slayer, right? Yeah, you're even that much more ahead. Yeah. But we also, I, I kind of want to touch on that real fast. The, uh, the dies to removal thing, because... You know, like that that's often a trope. Actually, it's a, it's a huge trope in the magic community. Oh, that dies the doom blade, you know? Yeah. Uh often often cards uh will die to a removal spell and you know, a lot of people will think of it like this card is bad because there's removal that deals with it. And I don't really think that that is a fair way to assess the card. Um just just saying that it dies to certain removal is kind of mm, they print unconditional removal. Everything dies to unconditional removal. So if you're trying to gauge a card's like playability or rating it in a scale based on the amount of... I mean, looking at the amount of removal, I think, is relevant, right? Because the more likely somebody is to have that removal, sure, the less maybe overall powerful that card is. But it's still just... In a vacuum, it's just amazing. 
Yeah, that's true. I think when people start complaining about diest removal, they might also be they might be preferring cards that have some kind of big enters the battlefield effect. Like maybe enters the battlefield and makes another creature immediately or kills a creature or pings something or gains you some life uh, in a way that's pretty hard to interact with. But then mm -hmm. you can just say, oh, well, you can counter that spell. Like That spell's counterable. Right. right. right? Uh, so, so then at what point do you stop, right? And I, I agree. Oftentimes you'll be at points in the game unlimited where they've already spent the removal. Most decks don't have more than five or six removal spells in them. And oftentimes only two or three of those are unconditional. If you're playing a deck like Red Green uh, and you're using damage or fight, maybe all your removal is conditional. And you might not have a single creature on the battlefield that's big enough to, say, fight down a Baneslayer. So, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of with you here. I think Baneslayer deserves the love that it gets. Uh, and I think even though it's been getting outclassed by some of these bigger creatures like uh, Uros and, and that kind of thing, uh, Mythics that provide card advantage, I think we've also started to see a general trend in design towards creatures that replace themselves when they enter the battlefield, right? Um, think Omnath. Why does it draw a card for itself? It doesn't need to do that. Uh, and I think a lot of people would argue that that makes it a better uh, threat than Baneslayer. But, I mean, Baneslayer also has other applicability, right? Omnath does not really save you from a lot of board states that Baneslayer does. Mm -hmm. So... What are some pros of Quadrant Theory? Well, it gets you thinking about every aspect of a card's playability. It gets you thinking about what does this card do when I'm not doing so so hot, when I'm behind? What does it do when I'm ahead? What does it do when we're on, on a board stall or my opponent and I are just goldfishing? Um, it gets you thinking about those scenarios, which I think just, especially the vanilla test, won't get you to think about. And most people will look at a card, especially because of the way that spoilers tend to work. We see a lot of like the big flashy cards almost on their own a lot of times. Um, we get big dumps of the commons at the end, but like most sets, you see some of the more powerful uncommons, the rares and the mythics in a vacuum. You only see those cards and that can make it harder to recognize like when does this card really do well if you're not applying quadrant theory to it. It also applies to every set without any issue at all. Uh, there's no set specific boundaries. Every single set, every card in every set will be able to fit within quadrant theory and you can apply it to all of those cards. Now, some of the cons of Quadrant Theory are that it ignores context. Uh, it doesn't care about um, what other cards are in the set from a synergy perspective. It doesn't care about any, uh, like we were just talking about, it doesn't care about removal or anything like that. It doesn't take any other cards into consideration except the card that you're evaluating through Quadrant Theory. So because of that, it can miss out on some of the power level of cards and can cause you to underrate cards a little bit because those synergies might be so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this kind of shines in straightforward limited environments, I want to say. Uh, core sets, for example, where you just want the best thing for your mana at every point. Mid-rangey sets, we'll say. Um, this, for example, isn't very good at adjusting to the speed of a format, where we have a slightly more aggressive format than we had thought with, uh, with Kaladesh Remastered, for example. This isn't as good at saying, well, maybe you do want to pick up that, uh, that more aggressive low drop than that bigger, bomby late drop, right? Um, I also think this is a, a good thing to have in your head while you're taking draft picks. Think in your head, well, does this do what I want it to do at different points in the game? Uh, if I top deck this on turn 10, will I be happy with my uh, little pump spell or would I rather have just a, a creature that can affect the board in some way? Yeah, and that's kind of where we get into the conversations about like the 23rd card, which um, some of you newer players might might have heard people squabbling over like, what is my 23rd card in this deck? And that's generally because we play 17 lands. We talked about that in the last basics episode, but um, that 23rd card 
is controversial because sometimes once you get into that point where you're looking at your last cut, it can be really hard to determine what is the best card to put here for my deck. Sometimes cards just seem like they are equal, and sometimes they are. But looking at this, applying quadrant theory to those cards can help you more reasonably determine, okay, this card should be my 23rd card and this one should not, or vice versa or whatever. Um, We also see that... Crap, I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Yeah, no, I guess we're just moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Just cut it. So uh, what's the next big theory that we want to dive into today? So next up is synergy theory. And synergy theory is interesting because it's not exactly a theory on its own, so to speak. Uh, It's sort of an extra layer to add on top of quadrant theory. But synergy theory was created by Ben Warney, co-host of Lords of Limited, uh, which is another limited podcast. If you aren't familiar with that, I don't know how you found us, but uh, check (laughs) check them out because they're really cool. Um, Essentially, synergy theory is that missing layer that we just talked about in quadrant theory. It evaluates cards within the context of a set, keeping those potential synergies in mind. So once you've applied basic quadrant theory to your card evaluation for a particular card, basically synergy theory is asking the questions, how do the synergies in the set change the power level of the card that you just put in each of those quadrants? So something like Blood Chief's Thirst might not be affected much by the synergies available, but when you think about the fact that it has Kicker, well, now you can see that, okay, maybe this means this card actually works in some kind of blue-green splash black kicker strategy and will it helps buff roost of drakes helps buff, buff uh, vine gecko all of these cards so maybe it doesn't boost blood chief's thirst as a card rating but it will boost vine gecko and it'll boost roost of drakes because there are more cards available that have kicker mm-hmm. and this is something I you wouldn't good, see in quadrant theory yeah i think a good example from caldash remastered would be built to smash right that's one red for an instant that gives an attacking creature plus three plus three uh, and I believe it's a, if it's an artifact creature or if it's a vehicle artifact creature, I forget the specific, but it gains trample mm-hmm. uh, until end of the turn. And I think if you were to look at this through just quadrant theory, you would say, well, this doesn't do anything when you're developing, right? Uh, this doesn't really do anything when you're behind. Uh, at parity, I guess that you can use it to smash through. Uh, and while you're ahead, it's just kind of like a bolt, right? It just kind of adds some damage on. This is good at breaking through blockers. Uh, but it's pretty useless when you're behind because if you're not attacking or if you don't have any creatures, then this just rots in your hand. Now, if we start to look at this through a lens of synergy theory, we can think, well, am I attacking a lot? Is this something that I want to be doing in this format anyway? Are there other cards that let me do this, that let me attack easily? And it turns out there are. For example, red-white has a lot of ways to uh, prevent your opponents from blocking or tap down their creatures or give flying or things like that that allow you to get in for more damage and maybe force some rougher blocks on your opponent, in which case Built to Smash becomes a fantastic card. Yeah, and even further than that, Kaladesh is a set that is full of 1-1s. Going wide is very easy. You can get servos, you can get thopters. So there are chump blockers for days, which means that trample keyword is really relevant. And that also boosts the the card evaluation on that card as well, because in quadrant theory, that kind of thing doesn't really come up. So some of the pros of synergy theory, basically it provides a slightly more holistic approach to cards in a given format than quadrant theory does on its own. Uh, and it utilizes context for a better picture of a card's total power level. Some of the cons are that it can be difficult to apply uh, synergy theory in sets that are lacking inherent synergies. We think something like like Zendikar Rising has a lot of synergy. It's a synergy-heavy set. But something yeah. like the tradition or traditional core sets, say M20, M19, it's kind of hard to apply synergy theory because most of the time the cards there don't synergize very well. Or that's not a core feature or core tenant of that particular set. So on top of that, 
Synergy theory also requires a stronger set knowledge than other evaluation methods. Quadrant theory, because it takes the cards in sort of a vacuum, it looks at them in the quadrants uh, of the game states, it doesn't really compare them to any other cards in the set. And so you can look at a card, any card from any given set, and use quadrant theory to determine how good that card might be on its own. But synergy theory really requires you to know the ins and outs of the set before you can really use it properly. So if you're newer to drafting, start with quadrant theory, use that to evaluate cards, and then apply synergy theory on top of that when you think you're ready and you know the set well enough, uh, and see how that balances out your card ratings. And I want to take a second here before we get on to the next sort of mini theory to mention that it's really, really beneficial to generate your own sort of list of card ratings. If you have the time between sets or when, when the spoiler comes out for a new set, take the time to sit down, evaluate the cards on your own, come up with a list of ratings, whatever your scale might be, and then compare that to, to your favorite content creators. Compare that to our format breakdown, compare that to Lords of Limited and Lords uh, and Limited Resources and Limited Level Ups and all the other uh, draft related podcasts out there. Check out other people's ratings and compare them to yours because especially if you're a new player, this can be a great way to understand what things you're overlooking, what things other players think are more important and why. And um, it can be a really big level up. Mm-hmm. And then once you've done that, don't just let it stew. Uh, update it once you start playing the format a bit and start getting that real experience. And then when you watch gameplay videos, update it based on what they're seeing and what they think and say, I don't know, uh, keep an ear to the ground on Magic Twitter. Sort through all the nonsense that <laughs> is posted in there every day to, to see what people are thinking about new cards and new sets. And this all kind of builds to help you have a, uh, a cohesive understanding of the limited environment that lets you apply synergy theory more effectively. Okay, okay. So you're hearing us, you're listening to this, and you're thinking, quadrant theory, synergy theory, what the heck is all this stuff? Why I don't have the time to do all this. There are a <laughs> lot of cards in a set. Like Most sets have like 200 plus cards in them. Uh, is, do you have anything for me? that might be a little bit faster, might be a little bit easier to understand. Well, we don't, but Marshall Sutcliffe has you hooked up. Uh, Here he is. Welcome back to the show. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? (laughs) We held out on him for almost an hour (laughs) before introducing him. Oh man, no, he's he's not here yet. Um, Hopefully we'll get him on a second time, but... um, Someday, someday. If if you don't know, he's the creator and co-host of Limited Resources, but essentially... He created a theory a while ago. This is this is relatively old. Um, called Cab's theory, and Cab's theory is about cards that affect the board state. And this is a is a card evaluation theory that only evaluates cards on that their ability to affect the board state. So without a doubt, there are two and kind of three card types that affect the board state. Right? There are creatures. There's removal because they remove creatures, and then to a lesser extent, there are combat tricks because it helps get rid of creatures uh, on your opponent's side of the battlefield. Occasionally, there are other card types that also affect the board, like enchantments or artifacts, but these are the fundamentals, right? Creatures and removal. And Marshall developed a whole list of, uh, uh, like, Cab's commandments, uh, which you can check out on his article debuting the topic on Wizards' uh, Wizards website, which uh, I'll have a link for in the episode description as well. Um, But essentially, this theory just says all you're going to do, and and this is more of like a a pseudo-card evaluation, pseudo-draft strategy theory, Essentially, Cab Theory just says all you're going to do is draft cards that affect the board state. So that means they're either creatures, they're removal, or they say like they do something to the board immediately as they hit the battlefield. And that means if it's an enchantment, it creates a token. Or uh, and gaining life isn't doesn't count. It's not affecting the board. 
Um, doing something on your next turn doesn't count because uh, that doesn't affect the board of the turn it comes down. So generally, it's just creatures and removal, but there are some exceptions to that. And actually, good. Uh, I was just gonna say a handful of planeswalkers do, but also a lot of planeswalkers don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some planeswalkers that enter the battlefield and either just like draw cards or uh, Narset Parter Veils, for example. Not always the best limited. It doesn't actually do anything. It draws you a card, but it's kind of just like a divination. Right. And, and this theory is not to say that cards that don't affect the board state are bad, but I, I think you'll see a relatively big leap in your win percentage if you take an entire draft off. If you just stop, like, your next draft, and I, I kind of challenge you, the listener, to do this. Next draft, only draft cards that affect the board state. Don't care about anything else. Only draft cards that affect the board state. And see... See what your deck is like after that. See what it comes out to be. See how it plays. See how it feels. And I think you'll find in general that it's actually quite a step up because you're not dirtling around with these these strategies that might take either um, maybe more gameplay knowledge or more like uh, actual skills in, in gameplay, but also um, they're more straightforward. They're more linear, uh, meaning that they have a single game plan and that's what they do. And you often will find yourself uh, almost with a surplus of threats, right? Some decks really fall apart because they don't have enough threats. And Cab's Theory fixes that. Mm-hmm. Decks that follow Cab's Theory well are able to curve out. And uh, they can usually do it pretty consistently. And, you know, creature, creature, kill your thing, creature, big bomb, uh, smack for a million. Kaladesh especially will find that pretty useful. Uh, at this point, Zendikar, we've, people have kind of gotten this one pretty figured out. Uh, sometimes those decks require you to do things that seem a little weirder, don't necessarily affect the board state in, in as much of a way, because it's a very synergistic set. Uh, but in Kaladesh, if you affect the board state, you're going to win games. Now, um, this is an example of why certain cards often get pretty low ratings just right off the bat. For example, Adventure Awaits or Scale the Heights. These don't really do what they're worth in a card, right? Uh, Scale the Heights, I guess. It puts a counter on something, but that's hardly affecting the board state. That's about as as minimally as you can affect the board state, right? I, th- I think I'd rather have a 1-1 token than, than just a 1-1 counter on a creature. Well, yeah, I mean, the counter doesn't do anything if you don't have any creatures. And if it generated mm-hmm. a token, at least you'd have a creature around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So think about putting these kinds of cards in your deck. And that's not to say you can't, you know, after you, you know, beat Zach's challenge of uh, doing a, a full uh, cabs draft. Then once you start to go back to, to normal, quote unquote, think about the cards that you're putting in your deck that aren't creatures, aren't removal, and aren't, you know, uh, solid combat tricks. And think, is this really worth an inclusion in my deck? Uh, would I rather just have a three mana three three instead of this bizarre artifact that does something or other or who knows what? And I think you'll find that your win percentage will go up. Yeah, and I think that that's actually the gist of the challenge there is to not just start drafting cabs for the rest of your life and never turn back is really to get a perspective on why a card makes your deck if it doesn't affect the board because sometimes it's right sometimes it's correct to do that but you need a reason and it needs to be a good one and drafting cabs style will help you understand what those reasons are and really help you appreciate the cards that work uh in in a situation where they don't affect the board state right away but they make your deck better anyway what do you think the best card is that doesn't affect the board state Really? Um, I'm, Sphinx's Revelation, I'm, come on. Oh, okay, okay. I was going to say Omniscience, actually. But, Omniscience uh, is a good one. Yeah. Counterbalance. These are, uh, again, d- don't do this in Limited. Uh, we're just thinking in general. Well, and that's that's one other thing. That's You mentioned a little bit on how uh, 
some cards get bad ratings, even though they seem like they're good cards. That's mm. also why a lot of constructed oriented cards get bad limited ratings because they're designed to be part of some combo that maybe the the second part of the combo was in a set that's you know a year old or whatever, or uh, they're they're operating on some niche situation that is really easy when you have four copies of all these other cards to make it work, but when you only have the single copy, you can't quite get there. So a lot of cards tend to get bad limited ratings when they're constructed. They're designed for constructed uh, as well. So that's a that's about it. We have we have quadrant theory, we have synergy theory, we have cabs theory. Um, these are the bread and butter of card evaluation in limited Magic the Gathering. And if you aren't using these, I really highly recommend that you do. This is going to level up your drafting skills immensely just by knowing which cards are worth taking over other cards. And kind of to me is is a first step after now knowing how to draft. How should how should you place cards above others? How should you understand which cards to take out of a pack and uh, things of that nature? These are the ways to do it, and these are going to help bolster that skill quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I want you to also start thinking about when you see a certain card that everyone knows is good. Take a Gear Hulk, for example. Pick one. Noxious Gear Hulk, for example. Think about why it's good. Think about which of these theories apply to it and think about why it's good at certain points or good in certain synergies or a good effect in the board. And then also do that for the cards that are kind of universally accepted to be bad and trash and filler. And start using these theories more frequently. Start slowing down in your draft and thinking about what you can learn from these as you're making your picks. Right? Like theories are good, but uh you know, it's really the practice that, that matters. We can write all day about theories, but until we start using them and applying them to gain something, which uh, presumably for you listening is doing better at the game or winning more or having more fun, uh, until we start doing that, they're useless. Go out and, and apply these. Go win some games. Yeah, absolutely. And I would recommend taking taking the time, like I said, with new sets, definitely take the time before the set actually releases to go through this. It'll give you a good idea of at least run quadrant theory, run the cards through the quadrant theory, because it gives you a good idea of uh, what cards are available. And just, I mean, I know for me personally, just seeing the cards and knowing what the cards are makes me way less daunted at the beginning of the format when I get sit down for my first draft and I, I look at a pack and I actually recognize the cards. That can be huge, uh, to, to at least for me uh, on the first draft uh, or the first couple of drafts even. But uh, getting an idea of which cards are better than other cards before you even draft the set is is huge. It can help a lot in your first few drafts for the set and um, will also give you something, a base to work on for, like Ben said, adjusting those ratings and uh, understanding how the meta is shifting because limited does have a meta. It, it, feel, it might feel like it's a format that doesn't because, well, your deck is different every time and you can't guarantee you're going to get the same deck, but there is a meta. There, there are pick orders that people will highly take. Uh, there are colors that people prefer to draft over others. And while we don't recommend uh, aggressively drafting any particular color or, or archetype, but um, there, there are cards that people s- are, there are cards that are more highly sought after than others. So uh, there is some form of meta in limited and uh, this can help you navigate that. That about does it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed. Um, if you want to contact me or Ben, you can do so on Twitter at Rannick Alfredian for myself or at Betafish1 for Ben. If you want to contact the podcast directly, you can do so at DraftChaffPod on Twitter or DraftChaffPod at gmail.com. Also, of course, please check out the Discord if that's your thing. 
It's completely free, as we said, and we've got channels for all sorts of different conversations. Trophy decks, uh, Zenikar Rising, Kaladesh Remastered, Quick Draft. We've got some stuff for rotating uh, Premier Drafts. We've got the, the Vintage Cube in there. We've got some Constructed stuff. We're putting together a Commander Legends Sealed League, which is pretty much done as far as signups, but this won't be the last one. So, you know, if you're interested in getting some leagues together or getting cube drafts together, uh, I know one of our users, uh, Dorigan, has started putting together an arena-friendly cube for... For their friends and such but um that would be super fun and can be drafted online and ported into arena so if you're into that kind of thing just building a community check out the discord it's it's a great place for that also uh, as always uh, we like to, to plug the patreon at the end here as well if you're interested in giving back to the show directly that's the place to do it dra- uh, patreon.com forward slash draft pod that'll do it for us have a good week so i think it's about time that we come up with our own draft chaff theory or, or we need to make our mark on the on the limited history environment so, something we, we need we need a legacy dude well, how, what can it be a lot of the good mm. ones are taken yeah that's true i mean like we talked about the three big ones here especially for like i mean these are strictly card evaluation theories so if we were trying to add something to that uh yeah i'm, I'm not so sure but uh, if we're trying to, I mean, just take all the bad cards, maybe take all the non-constructed <laughs> cards ever. See, I've been thinking about what kind of theory we could push forth to to get into the, I don't know, the, the big boys, uh, the the real limited uh, content creators, right? So I was thinking, um, I had a few ideas. I mean, I love bluffing. I, okay. I think that bluffing is severely underrated and it's often not focused on enough. So maybe we could come up with some kind of bluffing theory. Um, I don't know. I'll have to go back and, uh, man, maybe, maybe I'll go re-listen to our bluffing episode and, and try to come up with something from that. Or here's another idea that I just had. Theory theory. Oh, no. Uh, the, <laughs> the idea that uh, unless you actually apply the, the theories about magic and do them in practice, uh, they're useless. All right. You write up an article for MTGA Zone on theory theory <laughs> and uh, let me know how that goes. Um <laughs> I think I'll just go draft some more. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably a better time.